you know, I've pushed back when students ask me for more direction. Mm-hmm. I tell them, look, I'm sorry, you're a graduate student. Okay. And believe me, when you get out into the real world, you will realize, oh, Kareem was so structured. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because right. the world is even more unstructured. There are no right answers. No, not only there are no right answers, there are no clear cut questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. You go out into the world and your boss is going to tell you, hey, there's something happening here. I want you to fix that problem. And they haven't told you what the problem is. They've just told you what a symptom of the problem is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And they just tell you, oh, there's a symptom, go fix it. And you're like, well, what am I supposed to do? And when I reviewed the, uh, the applications, I'm looking very carefully at that. I'm looking for people who don't want to color outside the lines or who can't mm-hmm. get outside the lines and, uh, or who need a paint by numbers uh, coloring book. And I'm like, okay, if you want paint by numbers, then there's lots of places that will teach you how to paint by the numbers. Mm-hmm. But we need impressionist artists or, or whatever you are. Maybe you're a cubist. That's not my job to tell you <laughs> what kind of artist you should be. But I'm looking for real artists and I'll just give you a blank canvas. Love and you're that. like, right? And yeah. that's, mm-hmm. yeah. And my job is to help you paint whatever it is that's in your head, not, not to tell you what to paint. That was Kareem. Kareem is a distinguished educator, researcher, and innovator with over 20 years of experience in designing, deploying, and evaluating e-health technologies. He is the director of the Master of Health Informatics program at the University of Toronto and CEO of InfoClin. We had a lot of fun recording this episode and hopefully you enjoy it as much as we did. You are now listening to the Next Iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Delighted. I'm yeah, looking so, forward to it. Should be fun. Yeah, we are uh, very, very much excited. looking forward to it too. So I, uh, full disclosure, I did tease our cohort with this episode because I told them, hey, you guys. <laughs> oh, you know? no. You're using my name. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, everyone's okay. excited to hear um, some of your thoughts and some of these uh, questions that we'll have posed to you today. So um, let's go ahead and jump into it then. I guess a good place I wanted to start with, because uh, you've spent a lot of time now within the education system, right? Like on both sides of it, both as an educator and as a student. Yeah. And, you know, like myself and Fouad, we have our own opinions on it, but what do you think our education system does well and what does it do poorly? Yeah, I think uh, what we do well, I think, is expose students to good concepts and good material. There's a lot of good academic material uh, because knowledge is available. And what I think we do well is take that knowledge and curate it into bite-sized pieces so that students can absorb it and um, uh, articulate it and engage with it and then be able to use it and make it their own. So I think we do a good job of that. I think the areas where I would like to see us do much better on is what I call the effective outcomes, not the content or cognitive outcomes, but the affective outcomes. And by affective outcomes, I mean like, you know, uh, how are we doing on our ability to engage the public? How are we doing on our ability to 
listen carefully to people's ideas because those who are most marginalized have the, the weakest voice. Um, how do we listen to ideas that, <laughs> that don't resonate with our own? You know, it's like, hey, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. somebody has an idea and it's in opposition to ours. How do I listen carefully and how do I incorporate that person's ideas so that I have a fuller picture rather than think I'm right and they're wrong? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. I think is, we don't do a good job. And I call it, hey, we in Canada are sucky at diversity. Mm -hmm. Okay. We like each other's food, but <laughs> you know, beyond that, yeah. we don't know how to uh, work with each other. And I think we need to do a lot better on that. And I think educators should be leading on that front. Mm -hmm. That's one area. And the other area where I think we could do a better job is in the experiential learning. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we offer students co-ops, we offer students practicums, we offer students, you know, projects. That's what we do at U of T. But I think, you know, the supervision of those is not as good as it could be. Like, I think we could squeeze a lot more out of it uh, like, I mean, students learn a lot. Like, it's not that they don't, okay? And it's great to be able to go into the workplace and utilize the skills that uh, you learn about in class. So that's the point of experiential learning is to take the learnings from uh, what we taught, the cognitive information that we taught in class and apply it. And But, you know, there's, again, there's the effective component uh, that's missing, which is, you know, the soft skills. How am I listening? How am I doing? Uh, how am I engaging others? Do I uh, understand how this organization works? Do I understand how decisions are made? Do I understand, you know, the political undercurrents, the, the you know, the unspoken networks? Uh, those are things I think we could do a lot better job of. Uh, in, um, so... Kareem's thoughts, you know, just off the top of my head, what the hell? You know? For sure. Yeah. No, you touched on like um, a lot of interesting points. I want to like tease apart the answer a bit because, yeah. I mean, I think each of those are worth exploring. I guess starting with like what you said initially with the uh, diversity piece, I, 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 I really feel like the younger generations are doing a tremendously better job of just being, you know, just generally accepting more people, right? 100%. And, you know, one part, so Canada does pretty fairly consistently rank uh or pretty consistently rank very high within like the global education system rankings mm -hmm. and you know now we're seeing like I, I, if i'm not mistaken i think over a third of our population now is comprised of immigrants mm -hmm. if i'm not mistaken yeah and i suspect and this is just my hypothesis i might be off base here but actually we're we're 90 percent immigrants but you know it 90 percent well oh, okay. yeah, go, I mean, go and yeah. go and ask go and ask the right. first nations peoples and they'll tell you it's dude <laughs> if you're not native you're not you're an immigrant <laughs> right Absolutely, for sure yeah um so I mean, that's a completely valid point, but even just with um, what we're seeing people from like the East coming in or just like other parts of the world, mm -hmm. it feels like, I mean, especially like, I mean, all of us, I think can relate to this, but you know, our parents really pushed us and like really put education as the, uh, as the pinnacle of importance when we were growing up. Right. Yeah, and yeah. considering how many, how much of our population is comprised of those individuals, I feel like that has something to do with how high we rank rather than like the system itself. Cause it feels like, 
the actual, you know, at the federal level, there's very little touch points there with the actual um, government or like other political entities and how our system is run. So do you think that's a, a fair assessment or am I just off base? Uh, well, I think, you know, uh, we have a good education system. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and I would say that we prize students engagement with the material. So it's not rote learning. It's not, you know, here are the facts you must memorize. That's not how we teach. And I think what that allows us to do is it allows us to engage every mind and bring every mind to the game instead of saying, no, it's only the teacher's mind that's, that matters and everybody else's mind must be molded to the teachers. I think that's why we are so good. Right. And I agree with you. I think, you know, I know my parents sacrificed a lot to have me go through so many years of schooling. Sure. And, um, and I think that's uh, definitely part of that culture, but I think uh, that's only part of the, uh, the equation. I think, of course, we have to have students who are motivated, but you know, if you and I had gone to school somewhere else, our educations would have been very different, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, we do have a good system. Uh, it's important that parents and uh, communities support and encourage their uh, their kids to go to school and to further their education as far as possible. I have a quick follow-up on that, actually. No. So you mentioned in the beginning that, um, you know, Canada sucks at diversity. And, and you know, while Canada is very diverse, and we, we sometimes get complacent with, with our statistics, you know, we're a very diverse country, but it's one thing to be diverse and another thing to be good at diversity, right? And so uh, centering totally in on that, yeah, yeah, for sure. So centering in on that, um, a question I have for you is, how do we encourage diversity of thought in a classroom setting? Because, you know, as, as you know, political div divisiveness has never been higher, right? Polarization, things like that. You know, people just don't want to listen to each other. Uh, when it's 260 characters in a tweet, it's really hard to incorporate multiple perspectives, right? So how do we incorporate that into our education system and actually allow more voices to be heard without, you know, creating like a divisive and a polarizing culture? Yeah, I think that's easy. Um, you know, the first thing is uh, we do it already at U of T in the, in the program. And uh, the first thing we do is we uh, do two kinds of groups. We have group work where you have a fixed group so that you get to know somebody in depth and you get to know a few people in depth, but we also have random groups that we have that you get to jump into a small group uh, and work with somebody completely randomly so that you get a chance to meet other people whose ideas are gonna be totally different. You know, health informatics is a cross-cutting theme, so it forces us to be thinking about administrators, politicians, bureaucrats, patients, providers, you know, payers, all of these people have different stakes in the game. And so we have to think about things from a diverse perspective and, and see how do I, any project has to meet the needs of all of those stakeholders. And so how do I create value? And then I think that, the, you know, so we have to we have to talk about that, those kinds of things and create opportunities for, for students. But I think that the most important one, which I try to do is to make it explicit to the students and say, this is what you need to do. This is, look, I'm just giving you opportunities to figure it out, uh, you know, to try it out. But if you don't bring the right attitude, if you don't bring the right uh, mindset, if you don't bring the right 
creativity to this, it's not going to happen, mm-hmm. right? It's it's up to each of us to bring that. It's we have agents, we are agents, and we we train agents. We don't train robots, and so it's up to us as agents to come in. And I think that in, uh, agency cannot be overly overemphasized. I think in this in this case, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, because otherwise like- otherwise it just it's very easy to kind of uh, fall back on stereotypes and cliches and fall back on what it's kind we like know. a regression to the mean. It's a regression to the mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, type one and, and type two systems of thinking. Yeah, exactly. I like it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. Um, like, and you also mentioned the uh, the like project based learning kind of aspect to where our education system can really improve on, and I think it's mm-hmm. such an important point because so many of us merely only study for an exam that's it we're not studying to learn right we're just studying to get the grade and you know i understand the need for like a standardized grading system so it's kind of like a fair playing field right especially if you have a large population it's hard to deliver a truly student-centered learning experience when you have large class sizes um but it's like how do we skirt around that too like within the actual class setting like i know we have problem-based learning project-based learning but again, like it's hard to kind of cater to every student's individual needs and to be able to tap into that, right? Do we just need smaller class sizes or like, how can you envision a better system to encourage everyone to really realize the true potential of their own strengths? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Big classes are hard to, to manage. And I think uh, the way we've tried to do it is we have encouraged alumni to come back. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we have you know, alumni who dedicate themselves to a, a, an individual class, a specific class. So we have about three or four alumni per class mm-hmm. who um, support the class. And what we've done is we've encouraged them to interact with the students uh, in, a, in a group setting. So in a small group, you know, when you have your small group uh, learning uh, interaction that you're doing to prepare for a particular assignment, what we ask is the uh, mentors to come and work with you, to help you think about uh, what you're doing, to give you feedback on what it is that you're doing, to ask you hard questions, to push your thinking, to make it better. And I, I saw the impact of that right away. Like, you know, in my first course last semester, I gave away more A pluses than I've ever given before. And I was like, oh my God, like what happened, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there's no way these people exceeded my standard <laughs> but of yeah. course you had and of course now what's happened what what happy what's happy is that my standards have gone up and so mm. you know the last year's a pluses will become today's a's and you'll have to work harder to push uh to get that a plus oh. but you know i think so my sense is that uh that has worked uh, mm. is you know giving you that kind of mentoring in small groups uh, because at the end of the day, I don't think one-on-one makes will make much difference mm-hmm. in this space because, precisely because uh, it's not an individual sport. It's not like medicine. I mean, I went to med school. Med school is an individual sport. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I'm the doctor. I run things. I give the orders. They actually call it orders. Nurses fulfill the fulfill the orders. Right. Uh, you know, the whole hospital is built around fulfilling the orders of a doctor. Uh, but the mm-hmm. doctor is at the top and makes the decisions. It's very That's, hierarchical. It's extremely hierarchical. Yeah. Whereas healthcare, health informatics is not like that. Health informatics is cross-cutting. 
you know, it cut, cuts across the whole entire spectrum of things. And so um, I don't think we can uh, achieve anything through that. The other thing I would say is that, you know, uh, I appreciate your comments around uh, testing and assignments and examinations. Now you'll notice that in, in our health informatics program, we don't have any examinations, okay? We have uh, assignments. And of course, you know, as a university, we have to assess you, but you'll notice that the primary purpose of an assignment is not really for assessment. The primary purpose of an assignment is actually to give you an opportunity to engage with the material, mm-hmm. you know, to say here, here's a way for you to work through all the, you know, I taught you five things, but those five things are, are extremely well connected, but you can't connect it in your head until you've played around with it and seen how those things fit together. Right. right? And, you know, it's a shame that, you know, um, we have to teach that way, but that's the reality of how human brains work. I can't teach you everything at one time and say, there it is all, all in one, in one mm-hmm. shot. I have to teach you one thing at a time for you to play around with each of these little Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you start building things and then you start to see, oh, how things can be built and how gravity uh, affects the building blocks and other things like that. But until you get mm-hmm. there, you know, until you have an understanding of the building blocks and how they fit together, you know, you're not, we're not going to get to uh, building stuff yet. Yeah. And I'd like to how you, yeah, I also like just how the graduate school evaluation scheme works, because you kind of remove that fear of failure. Like it's, it's really hard to fail, right? Like once you're in the the program, so you can really focus more your efforts on trying to understand, like, what are the things that I can really gain out of these assessments? What are the actual learning objectives uh, and things that I can carry forward? Um, And I think that is really valuable, but there is still an aspect where, you know, so many people get so caught up in understanding the, like, what exactly do you want out of me, right? Like when you have someone evaluating what you're doing, they need to know, like, I need it black and white. I need it zero and one. What exactly do you want? So I can play within those like guidelines, right? And that's still something that I I was a little surprised that a lot lot of people still want to be, it's so, they want it so delineated because you would think that like, okay, well, this is an opportunity to have a little bit more freedom in expression, in ideating. Um, but the, yeah, that's just a quick comment. And like, I know Fouad also. No, was, uh, I think that's a, that's a great comment. And I'll, I'll comment before I let Fouad oh, yeah, ask sure. his no, question. Because hold, on to, hold on to your question, Fouad. But I think, you know, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, I've pushed back when students ask me for more direction. Mm-hmm. I tell them, look, I'm sorry, you're a graduate student. <laughs> okay. Right. And believe me, uh, when you get out into the real world, you will realize, oh, Kareem was so structured. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Because right. the world is even more unstructured. There are no right answers. No, not only there are no right answers, there are no clear cut questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. You go out into the world and your boss is going to tell you, hey, you know, there's something happening here. That I want you to, I want you to fix that problem. And they haven't told you what the problem is. They've just told you what a symptom of the problem is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And they just tell you, oh, there's a symptom, go fix it. And you're like, well, what am I supposed to do? And well, if you can't do it, then they'll just tell you, sorry, you, you're not good enough to be a, a manager. You know, here, let me show you how to sweep the floor and, and mop the floor because there's very hard lines about how to do that 
at the hospital. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you right. want clear cut, you'll get clear cut. Right? Yeah, you can. You can get clear yeah. cut. And uh, yeah, you know, in fact, one of the things that we're doing more and more now is when I reviewed the uh, the applications, I'm looking very carefully at that. I'm looking for people who don't want to color outside the lines or who can't mm-hmm. get outside the lines and uh, or who need a paint by numbers uh, coloring book. And I'm like, okay, if you want paint by numbers, then it doesn't mean health informatics is not for you. It just means that University of Toronto is not for you. Mm-hmm. There's George Brown, there's Ryerson, there's, there's York. There's lots of places that will teach you how to paint by the numbers. Mm-hmm. But we need impressionist artists or or whatever you are maybe you're a cubist that's not my job to tell you what kind of artist you should be but i'm looking for real artists and i'll just give you a blank canvas and you're like right and that's Mm -hmm. yeah and my job is to help you paint whatever it is that's in your head not not to tell you what to paint Mm -hmm. yeah continuing off this theme actually um so my mom's a kindergarten teacher Mm-hmm. And one of the big principles in kindergarten teaching is play-based learning, yeah. right? And so yeah. with play-based learning, they've actually moved from um, toys to blocks, to Legos, to like yeah. more and more simple shapes where kids don't have any, you know, preconception of what these shapes do, what they're meant for, what their purpose is. And it's completely exploratory, right? And so I think it's actually really cool how, you know, we start from a method of play-based learning and exploring as kids. And then somehow along the way in high school and in university, especially undergrad, you know, we get this black and white approach beaten into us. And then as you go to graduate school, it kind of reverses, right? And so I, I guess you can see like both ends of the spectrum are starting to change. And it's just a matter until, you know, high school and university also adapt to that as well. Um, maybe, maybe not. I didn't think, you know, there's some point where you just need to know the facts and you just need to true. know, you know, like there's a ton of facts that have been collected. And so at some point you just need to, you know, know your timetables and you just need to know certain things because unless you have a working knowledge of them in your head, you know, you're just not going to be able to work through things. Yeah. Until we get Neuralinks in our heads. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I hope, I know. I hope you guys get them. I hope you guys, you know, when I was your age, I was like, dude, as soon as it comes, I'm going to get one. Really? Yeah. But now I'm too old. I'm like, damn, who wants those things? Yeah. Oh, it's not, it's not intimidating. It's just like, okay, like, what's the point of it anymore? Because at, at this age, what I find is not, it's not so much the details that matter. It's the big building blocks that matter. So, so who cares whether you have the data on the building blocks, just Google it now. But dude, if it ever yeah. comes out, I would say just jump on it. All right. Like yeah. at, at your age, <laughs> you need that, man. You need wow. that. So you would have yeah. been part of that first cohort. Like if you were in our shoes and they just released their first public version of Neuralink, you'd be part of that first cohort? I'd be I'd be doing it. I would have done it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'll have great. to reevaluate. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to have some self-reflection on this, whether, whether I'd say yes, but I appreciate that. <laughs> um, cool. So actually pivoting the conversation a bit. Um, yes. And David might have told you a little bit. I am actually applying for my MBA right now. Um, for your deferred programs where you, you get in, in your senior year and then, uh, you know, you defer the acceptance for two to four years. So mm-hmm. is it worth it to get an MBA in 2021? That's the million dollar question for me. Actually not million dollar, maybe a hundred thousand dollar question. Because the tuition <laughs> it's, a, it's a hundred thousand dollar question. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it's about yeah. 110 now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, I, I got mine for about 42. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, I was a bargain, you know, at the time. 
-hmm. it was expensive at the time, but a bargain now. Look, I would what I would say is, uh, I, I I give I would give you two pieces of advice, not advice, but metrics. Number one is, education is never wasted. Okay, so if it's something that you want to do, uh, and you think it's going to be worth it, you should do it. Number one. And number two, I would say is education is a tool, right? It's a tool for achieving something. And I hope it's not a tool for achieving a, a big salary because who cares, right? Uh, the important thing is, what do you want to do with it? What are you going to achieve with it? How are you going to help the world? How are you going to make the world a better place? Uh, there are lots of MBAs out there who are making people tons and tons of money, but are not making the world a better place. All we've got is lopsided economies where, you know, a small percentage of the population holds all the money, which is not a good thing for us as a society. It's, it's not a good thing for us as a world. And um, I always tell people, I say, cash flow is like blood flow. When you have too little cash flow, you're anemic. When you have too little blood flow, you're anemic and you're weak and you can't do anything. And that's what we have today. So we have when blood is sequestered somewhere, in your body, guess what? You get sick from that, and uh, that's why we have a sick. We have sick economies today. Those who are vulnerable and marginalized have nothing, and the people who are at the top have everything. I think. So you know, MBA. Yeah, of course, it's a good tool, uh, but how are you going to use it to make the world a better place? Is my question to you. So, second part of that question: How did you use it to make the world a better Ooh. place? And, and what did it do for you? What was your experience? Like? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you know, um, I wanted it because uh, I wanted to uh, start businesses in the healthcare sector. And um, I, haven't, I, I mean, I started my own business. I've done, started a few businesses here and there, but they haven't really taken off the way I thought they would. But what has ended up happening is that the MBA gave me tools to help me understand how healthcare works, how the world works. I've had to, um, you know, the way they teach you about, uh, what they teach you in, in MBA school is really uh, much more focused on, uh, on the rest of the economy. It's not, it's not what was uh, useful for healthcare. So I had to kind of remap the concepts that I learned for a capitalist economy and bring it into a healthcare, which is really more like a communist type economy. But I learned a lot about, you know, incentives and frameworks. And so a lot of the last, you know, 15 years since I got my MBA, I've spent all that time figuring out how to map those concepts into health, the healthcare world. Uh, and now this is what I teach, you know, so a lot of what I teach is what I learned in MBA school, just flipped around to make sense for healthcare. Mm -hmm. You know, the concepts of uh, value for all the stakeholders is really a, is very much an MBA concept. You know, <laughs> nobody, nobody in healthcare mm -hmm. thinks about it that way. I can assure you of that. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, it's been very valuable for me, but it took me a long time to figure it out. Uh, I remember writing a, um, uh, a paper on segmentation, you know, like market segmentation. And I said, okay, well, yep. this is a very powerful concept. We need to segment patients. Well, it took me, you know, 15 years to get to a point where I actually had the data to be able to try segmentation. And those early ideas that I had didn't actually work out. And, but, you know, uh, I had to try out a whole bunch of different things until I was able to figure out, okay, how to do patient segmentation.
in healthcare. But I think that patient segmentation that I can do now is very powerful. And I'm hoping to be able to, you know, do some more, much more sophisticated uh, research than I could have done before. Yeah. So I actually have a pretty, uh, I have a follow-up for that, actually. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, you kind of touched on how you're using your, what you learned through your M- MBA to try and translate those learnings into healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a good transition to knowledge translation. Yeah. So 17 years has long been touted as the gap between knowledge and practice. Yeah. And you know, again, like you mentioned, you've got numerous publications under your belt at this point. And a lot of your research interests, if I'm not mistaken, has to do with increasing pro- provider productivity and uh, and improving care outcomes. So how are you actually actively translating your findings from research into the clinical care setting? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, the biggest uh, barriers that I see of, you know, that 17 years, uh, and by the way, I've looked for that original paper that where somebody said 17 years and I can't find it. Right. Everybody quotes it, but yeah. I've never found it. And one of the things that I tell people is that in health informatics, I don't care about that number. What I care about is how those researchers measured it and how I can replicate that measurement in real time. Right. Because we can only change things when we can measure things in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. if you can measure it, you can manage it. Right. What, is, is that the paper? Uh, I just found. Oh, the you paper. found it. Uh, I looked it in the. Yes, I linked it in the chat. If you guys want to look <laughs> at it, um, definitely make that some homework. Yeah, myself, I'll take. Uh, I'm not as well versed. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think. Yes. I don't think that's probably going to be the right article, uh, because that probably okay. is the article that quotes that other article. Mm-hmm. Inception. Yeah. See, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So where's that original paper? I would like to see it, but maybe this one will uh, reference it. Okay, good. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll take a look. Mm-hmm. No worries. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. So um, another question I have is there, there is number one, a lag between, you know, knowledge translation in, in healthcare and in a clinical setting, but then there's also a lag between business and the clinical setting. And so you've kind of had your feet in both, both ponds, so to speak, you've done your MBA and you've done your MD. Um, so what can we do as a society in terms of improving incentives for translating not just research into clinical care, but research into business as well? Uh, yeah, for sure. And I think here's the way I look at it. Okay. And this is the challenge that we have to figure out is that just because we have knowledge doesn't mean that it's applicable knowledge. All it means mm-hmm. is that we have a piece of information. Now the question is, how do I make that piece of information useful is much more complicated than you think at first sight. And I'll give you just a very simple example, okay? Um, When I used to practice medicine, um, I used to prescribe a specific drug for depression. And uh, I got good at prescribing that particular drug for depression. And the reason for that is because I understood the side effects. Uh, I understood what the effects, how it worked, how people experience the drug. I understood a lot about that drug, about the practical implications of that drug. So I could tell a patient, I said, look, you know, this is 
the name of this drug, this is how it works, this is the side effects, this is how long the side effects will last, you know, blah, 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 blah. You should see an impact in such and such time, you know, and it was great. And I had a lot of success with it because I not only was it a drug that was good, that worked, but I also helped people understand how they would experience it. And whenever I prescribed anything else, I just didn't know enough about it to allow me to have success with it. And when you have a patient that you give a drug to and they had a bad side effect that you didn't explain to them or you hadn't anticipated, guess what? They lose trust in the drug, but you lose credibility as a doctor. And next time you want to recommend a drug to them, they're not as, as interested, okay? So I don't want to change necessarily because I've got something that works. And I would need something that would be much superior, that has zero side effects and immediate effects for me to switch. And that hardly ever happens, right? So I think we need to understand that, you know, the real world is much more complicated and translating knowledge from the laboratory into the real world is much more complicated than, uh, than seems to happen at first blush. But here's the thing, the components of what are required can be known. So I know that when I'm offering a drug, that there are seven things that a patient needs to know about that drug. They need to know what its side effects are, what its effects are, how long it will take, how much it's going to cost, uh, how long they have to take it for, uh, and a couple of other things. Okay. So once I understand those dimensions, then I need to develop that for the next drug that comes along and the next drug that comes along, right? Mm -hmm. I also need to think about what that means for technologies. When it's a technology and I'm going to put it into a clinic or into a, a workplace, what needs, to, what needs to happen? Well, it turns out that we know there's 12 things that need to, be ha that need to happen. And when you get those 12 things right, everything else flows. Okay, so I think that that's the purpose of research is to discover new things, but also to uh, work out how to, to translate that into a, a working prototype. And then I think what we have to think about is how we get the utility of it. So there's, so what I tell students, and if, as soon as I tell this to Damien, he'll nod his head is that there's the pre-implementation, there's the implementation, and there's the post-implementation, right? And we have to think about all of those, those things before we, we generate them. And we also need to think about what's the cost of this stuff, right? And how is, are the costs of these things sustainable? And what's the value? And who's getting the value, right? Especially in healthcare, I can tell you, you know, one thing I learned uh, very early on is that in healthcare, it's very complicated. I call it, you know, I call it the children's cereal market. Okay, so have you heard about the, have you heard about mm. the children's cereal market? This is what I learned in MBA school. Okay, okay. only as a kid. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. So I'll tell you. So this is something I learned in, med, in in MBA school is that the children's cereal market is very different, and that is because it's the child who consumes it, but it's the mother or the parent who purchases it. Mm. Okay, most mm. other products are the consumer, the purchaser and the consumer are the same person, mm -hmm. okay? Right. And so in healthcare, we have a, an even more complicated structure. It's a three-way structure, 
you have a consumer who's the patient, the recommender who's the doctor, and the payer who's the government. Okay, mm-hmm. so whenever you have a drug that you want to bring to the market, you have to make it so that it's beneficial to the patient, to the doctor, and to the government. It's a lot of people to make happy. It's a lot of people to make happy. And, yeah. And technologies require even more people to be happy. And that's sure. what that's what makes this all complicated. Yeah. So I guess like in healthcare, it's more important. Are you familiar with like second order thinking? So yeah, second, order, yeah, second order thinking is essentially trying to understand what are the ramifications of your mm-hmm. of whatever you implement beyond mm-hmm. the initial anticipated outcomes. So you yeah. you like implement something right now for one specific objective. So you want to make money. But you, it turns out that you're, you know, breaching some regulation somewhere. So you had to completely shut down operations. Now you're, you're down a ton of money in the hole, right? Um, so that is the uh, second order thinking, which is um, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was, uh, I was doing a little bit of perusing on your profile, right? And like just looking into your background a bit more. And one, uh, one, one kind of quote, I guess it reminded me of just going through it is that enthusiasm is worth. 25 IQ points. And I heard that from Kevin Kelly. Okay. And uh, yep. the reason why I say that is, uh, so from what I've seen and heard other people say about you, it seems like you possess enthusiasm in spades. And, you know, even being in your classes, I see that you're always bringing the energy to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this keeps people coming back to work with you. Yes. Now, is that what you, is like, is that kind of like the primary ingredient you attribute your success to? Is there another main ingredient that has allowed you to see all of these um, accomplishments and accolades in your life? I don't know about accolades or <laughs> accomplishments. <laughs> I'm still working on that big accomplishment. You know, there's, you know, getting to the top of the mountain. If you, if you got to base camp one, it's okay. But, you know, right. other people may think you've gone high, but you, know, right. you, you haven't reached there yet. <laughs> uh, no, I think, you know, I, uh, the, you know, I, I'll tell you two things. So, so the first thing is that, you know, uh, in 2003, when I was doing my MBA, right, I was extremely cynical, extremely cynical, you know, there was, right. and um, it was just, I was painfully cynical. And I ended up actually uh, at a place just very similar to this background. Okay, I'm in, a, I'm in this virtual world, I'm living in the matrix right now, as you can tell. <laughs> but, you know, I was, a, I was in a very similar location. And uh, uh, I had a conversation with myself. You know, I told myself, Kareem, I said, look, you can't, you're not always right. And you're not always uh, going to have your way. You can't. The world has given you the cards that you are playing. So play your cards to the best of your ability and stop complaining about what cards, the way other people are playing their cards. I was actually, at that time, I was a consultant for Canada Health and for Way. And uh, I could see that the approach that they were taking to doing things was not going to work out. And I knew it back then. And 20 years later, you know, yeah, I was right. But so what? Who cares? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I told myself, Kareem, play your hands. And as soon as I started, as soon as I looked at it th- from that perspective, I said, okay, what's, my, what's in my hand? And uh, I don't worry about what other people do or how they do it i just say yeah okay why did it not work why did they think that would work so i just became curious and i just started to answer questions that's how i got into research and that's how i started to say okay yeah 
Well, what if they told, what if they asked me to come and run the place? What would I do differently? And then you realize, oh, oh, you, yeah, just because you can complain about other people's ideas doesn't mean that you know how to run the show <laughs> yourself, right? Yes, <laughs> I'm a very good complainer, right? actually. <laughs> so, so, you know, about uh, 10 years ago, I started to say, okay, Kareem, what are you going to do and how are you going to do it? And so I started to put together my research plan around answering that question. And it took me seven years to get to a point where, you know, I can uh, now explain to you what my research agenda is and, uh, and how I think about my research agenda and how I think about uh, how we could go about transforming the healthcare system. Mm. And uh, actually, I haven't shown this diagram to uh, anybody in a long time. Like at one point, I was showing it to everybody. And um, uh, we have a few minutes. Uh, uh, do you mind? I can show it to oh, you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you're going to have to uh, share yeah. your. Uh, in the meantime, I'll just go and grab it. Don't uh, worry. We'd love yeah, to see okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Are you learner, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So. You, me too. Like, I just. <laughs> yeah. Diagrams help me. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, yeah. I can, you know, I have to draw a diagram, otherwise, I'm, I'm useless. Which is ironic because uh, we host a podcast, yeah. which is completely. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I know. <laughs> this is cool. There's another podcast first now. Yeah, we have a. I saw the document. Yeah. We have a. We have a list of the podcasts first. What's what's that? Sorry. <laughs> so you you'll go. We have a list of podcasts first. Oh yeah. And you'll go down in history as the first diagram. Oh, perfect. Podcast. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, this is uh, Kareem's research plan. So basically, uh, the idea is that um, you know technologies don't work uh, by themselves uh, in a vacuum. They work in a context, and that context is. Uh, policy, governance, and sustainability. This is a, that that layer. There's an integration, interoperability, and system efficiency layer, and there's a patient and provider technologies layer. Okay, and basically, uh, if you think about uh, at the policy level, there's this. Uh, we have silos of care right now, but if we're going to to have um, that data uh, be aggregated. We need a shared health information governance infrastructure uh, framework. So we need to be able to uh, share that data across our silos. And uh, I had a I had a very good chat with somebody this morning, and you know they said, well, you know we have a feudal system, and what we need is a federated system. And I said, oh yeah, well you need governance for that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the research I do is with uh, in the governance of uh, data and information. Uh, and then we have, you know, innovation and policies, innovation policies. So we know that innovation uh, is a problem. How do we bring in new ideas and new co- concepts into healthcare is a, is a big issue. And what are the barriers? So, you know, I did a research project with three students um, on that. You know, population health economics speaks to what are the uh, economics of managing a population, right? So you have people, all these vulnerable people who can't afford to have uh, they have food insecurity. Well, guess what? You're not going to solve diabetes on the back of food insecurity. You can't ask people who mm-hmm. can't get a decent meal to take five medications. It makes no sense. For sure. Uh, you know. I also um, see a blockchain on here, and I've heard mm-hmm. a lot of skeptics, a lot of skeptics about the place of blockchain in healthcare. I'm just mm-hmm. curious, where do you stand on that? Um, uh, it's just a technology. It's a tool. And uh, there will be a role for that tool. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I actually have a, I did a presentation on, uh, 
on uh, the uh, what we can learn from Facebook for in healthcare and the Cambridge Analytica problem. Oh boy, yeah. And I actually use blockchain to solve that problem. And the reason why blockchain is um, uh, not well regarded in healthcare is because I don't think people understand what blockchain actually does. Okay, mm. blockchain mm. is not a database. It's just a transaction recorder. Ledger, yeah. It's just a ledger. Okay, so uh, is there no use for a ledger in healthcare? No, I would say no. That's not true. And there are ways of there are opportunities for using a ledger. And I actually came up with one to solve the Cambridge Analytica problem in healthcare, which I think nobody has brought up. You know, when you have shared health information, uh, nobody's brought up the whole issue of of that. But uh, I wrote a pa paper on patient empowerment, and uh, in there, it's very clear what the role of the blockchain could be. So, uh, you know, and I think uh, I, I, I can say that the patient empowerment uh, paper that I wrote actually has probably the most comprehensive view of how patients should be empowered. And you can see that uh, patient empowerment is up here in the policy and governance section. It's not down in here in the patient and provider technologies. Yet, if you go and you look at, if you do a Google search on patient empowerment, you'll see that most people are working at the level of patient and provider, to, at the provider, at the patient technologies level. They're trying to empower people by giving them technologies. And guess what? You can't do that. It won't work. Yeah, um, it, yeah I think uh, it was from the SRA Academy page, but there was this uh, quote on there that I read that I really liked. I think it was automating inefficient pro processes doesn't lead to greater efficiency. It actually leads to faster chaos. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very cool. So anyway, um, uh, you know, that's, cool. uh, you, you guys can take a, a, a screenshot of this and, and share it if you like. Yeah, that'd be cool. Let me do that. Yeah. Um, so we, we are getting close to time and there yeah. are still a couple other questions yeah, that absolutely. we would love to ask you. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking maybe we can do just like a quick rapid fire round and yeah. uh, leading up to our yeah, favorite final it. last question that we always Head, ask our guests. Headline answers. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, headline answers. Okay. So cool. Okay, I, you go, go ahead. You go first. I got to yeah. get the first one. Yeah. So how do you, how do you implement work-life balance in your life? You've done so much stuff. You've, you've gotten so many degrees and you're working all the time. How do you, how do you have work-life balance? Are you kidding? There's no such thing as work-life balance. <laughs> That's the only answer. <laughs> yeah. What's that? That's the only answer. There's no, no, no I think the thing is that uh, uh, it's about setting priorities. Mm. So family comes first. So mm. when I'm not dealing with family, then I'm working or I'm sleeping or I'm exercising mm. or whatever it is, right? So work-life balance is like a, is like a Western concept. Like, mm. come on, like, you know, I'm a Gujarati. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't know whether you know Gujaratis, but Gujaratis are business people of the world. They are like... <laughs> everything goes everything is our life right you know there's nothing outside of our life our life is our life okay figure it out make the best use of it and when you don't like the balance fix it right because it's always changing it's always right. changing right so fix it on the go don't don't try and put artificial boundaries on things okay it's, so there's no there's no boundaries yeah. yeah on the theme of always changing um what area of health innovation either people process or technology are you watching closely right now people people is a big part mm -hmm. uh that's why i'm you know good lord's put me here in this uh 
program director position. Um, you know, I won't be here forever. You know, it's a gig for me. And uh, once this is over, I'll be on to something else. But I think uh, at this point, it's people. Right. Mm-hmm. On that note, then, who have been some of the most impactful mentors in your life? It's a good question. You know, Ann Holbrook, I would say, is a big, has had a big impact on my life. You know, uh, people like Don Willison. Um, I don't know what these are people even, you know, right? I mean, they're people in my <laughs> life. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, you gain inspiration from people wherever you find them, right? And uh, uh, you learn from them. And, uh, you know, they bring certain insights, certain ways of looking at the world, uh, certain, uh, you know, things that you uh, you respect and you try and emulate them. Right. Okay. So I have one more question then Fouad can wrap us up with our final question. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask what advice okay. would you give to a young college student, but let me uh, kind of pivot that a bit and ask you, like, if, if I were to ask you to think about someone who currently stands out to you in your profession or in a prior role, why do they stand out? And it could be because of like an interesting combination of skills, work ethic, et cetera, et cetera. But like, who would, who would be the person that comes top of mind? Um, I can't say that I know anybody who, like, you know, maybe somebody like Kevin Smith or I really have a lot of respect for him. You know, he's he used to be as, you know, I knew, I've known him for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, uh, what's the why behind Kevin? Yeah, I'll, I'll explain it to you. You know, you know, he has a good vision for patient care, but it's not about, you know, he takes an uh, excellence in administration to achieve that goal. You know, whereas I might not be able to achieve excellence in administration to achieve better patient care, I would have to do it through uh, health informatics because that's my uh, vehicle. But everybody has a vehicle that they use to achieve their goal. And we all, as um, who have different vehicles, we all have to come together because we can't reach the destination without working with each other. So, you know, so my sense is that um, uh, we learn from everyone a little bit, you know, and we try and understand the excellences that people bring because even Kevin without, you know, if he doesn't have good policies to work with, he's not going to be able to achieve his goals. Right. Mm -hmm. Great answer. Um, Okay. Coming to our final question that we've been waiting for. Um, If you could put any one message on a billboard that would reach millions or even billions of people, what message would you put on that billboard and why? Uh, Patience first. And, uh, uh, patients reason, as in like pa- like care patients or like patients like patients as a virtue patients no patients as in people uh, gotcha. right uh, patients first is, <laughs> and uh, you know uh, the reason why the whole healthcare system exists is f- for uh, that person that person who is you know is ill but now I think more uh, uh, it's the person who's going to be ill. And uh, uh, because we have now the ability to predict ahead of time who's going to get ill and do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is in my mind, you know, so maybe I would say, uh, uh, you know, I invented a new term, you know, uh, it's called the future medical history, your future medical history. So, you know, you have a past medical history, you have a current yeah. history. 
and I invented this term, the mm. field of future medical history. So it's something that, you know, I'm very interested in seeing. And, uh, you know, I would say that uh, health, patients' health would be the thing that would uh, that we need to be thinking about. Because now, you know, we, up until now, we've been mostly focused on illness and illness, fixing illness. But now we need to think about health. And I think it needs to go much, much beyond physical health. Mm-hmm. And it's got to go to mental health. And also, I think, uh, and I'm going to call it spiritual health. Uh, because I think spirit, the spiritual is all about our aspiration, our aspiration to be the best person, the best person we can be. And yeah. that's not just physical or mental health. It goes be- much beyond that. And it ties into purpose as well. Mm-hmm. It's purpose. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Really viewing people holistically. Yeah. yeah. Which I think the, the healthcare system needs in space. Yeah. yeah. So I'm excited to see personalized medicine catch up till we can get to that free future med future future medical history. Medical mm-hmm. history. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it'll be exciting. So Kareem, we are a minute over time now. Thank you so much for your time today. And yeah. uh thanks for playing along with us in that rapid fire round right at the end there. Um, we did have a ton more questions to ask you. So hopefully we can have you on again sometime in the future once we're yeah. a little bigger too. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Yeah, it was fun. I really enjoyed our session. Like you guys are great. Like I was, yeah, it seemed so natural. I I only ummed and odd. We tried. No, no, I only (laughs) ummed and odd a few times, which is really awesome because, you know, if you ask a hard question, then, you know, it's like, oh my God, like I have to think this out carefully. And then it's um and ah and whatever. But you did, you did awesome. I mean, to your credit, you're very well spoken. 100%. So it's, it's, it's to your credit. Yeah, you're just lives. casually <laughs> dropping gems along the conversation. You probably didn't realize it. But yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, I just hung around a long time on this planet. And, uh, yeah. and like I said, you know, I just decided to be curious and open. And um, that's where the enthusiasm comes from. It's like, you know, all of okay. us can be enthusiastic. Yeah, for sure. So for anybody that's listening to this that isn't part of our, our MHI program, where can people reach you if they want to maybe follow up or follow you, learn a little bit more about you? You know, I gave up uh, on the business cards a long time ago because <laughs> what I realized is that when people need to find me, they can they can find me. Uh, Ooh, that's a bit of a challenge <laughs> now. I love it. That's a great. No, yeah, that's a great no I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, <laughs> yeah. you know. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me for on sure. Twitter. You know, um, uh, for the last 20 years, I've always had my uh, phone number on my on my signature, you know, oh, really? uh, on my email signature. So anybody who gets an email from me, they've got my phone number. Most people don't realize that, you know, most people <laughs> yeah. don't do that. But no, no, I've had that there. So uh, I'm not unreachable, that's for sure. Right. And you're also the uh, first search result that comes up if someone searches your name. So that also helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do have cousins with, with with my name. Yeah. And there's a you're real the estate. Most famous cream. Well, there's a real estate agent uh, in Edmonton oh, who's, yeah. like, who's second, who's second. Like he's like right there, you know, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing those expensive houses that's get funny. sold quickly. Otherwise, he'd be trending all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. All right, yeah, Kareem. Uh, Thanks, me... guys. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening.